tennis fans and welcome to another edition of the South Boss Slice. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. You can follow us at Southpaw underscore slice. Follow me at Ben Lewis SN590. Follow Mike at Pro Tennis Fan. And very happy to be joined on uh, this week's episode by a veteran, uh, one of our top tennis journalists in the country, writer for Tennis Canada, Tom Tebbett. And he can also be heard on Aces on Sportsnet 590. The fan, Tom, thanks uh, so much for joining us as we're sort of in the midst of the fall season of tennis. And uh, we wanted to start on the women's side, uh, discuss the Canadians, particularly Jeannie Bouchard, who was just uh, in Luxembourg and reaching a semifinal. And not only that, was just a couple points away from a final before uh, losing to Julia Gerges. Uh, we know she has a brand new coaching partnership now with uh, Michael Joyce. And uh, just from your perspective, uh, do you think she's in a way maybe turning a corner as uh, we, we get to the tail end of the season? Well, I should know how high she went. I don't know. She was, I think, maybe over 180 uh, a few months ago. So to be back up where she is now, I think she's 88. Um, pretty impressive. Uh, I think she was a little bit lucky, actually, uh, at both Wimbledon and the U.S. Open because she qualified in full marks for qualifying. But in the first round of Wimbledon, she got a British wild card, which is about the best opponent you can get. And at the U.S. Open, she got the exchange wild card for France, uh, Harmony Tan, uh, great name. Um, so I think she was a bit luckier. Plus, the women give more points to uh, to first-round winners uh, at the Grand Slams. The men only get 45, the women get 90. So that was a big boost for her. But I have to admit, she's played well. I mean, she gestad this summer. She was doing well in she got hurt. Uh, obviously, she did well last week. Uh, she played well in the Fed Cup in, in the spring. So back, being back where she, where she is now, uh, obviously, she's straight into the Australian Open. And I'm sure that was a, you know, a major preoccupation for her just uh, you know, a few weeks ago. So good honor to have gotten her ranking back up again. And I think Michael Joyce is a good choice as coach as well. I know him a little bit. I've seen some of the stuff he's done. I watched, I think, the other day a little bit of one of those on-court coaching sessions. And I think he makes a lot of sense. Tom, what do you think the turning point was for Jeannie Bouchard this year? I mean, after that epic 2014, she kind of stagnated for a few years, multiple, you know, coaching changes, injuries, things of that nature. Obviously, that slip at the U.S. Open in 2015. What is it this year that you noticed differently from her game that is finally starting to uh, show signs of life again? I don't know. I mean, I mean, you don't get to be number five in the world and, and two semifinals at the Australian and the French and then a final at Wimbledon not having some basic talent. So we know that's there. Um, I think she had the, the first year after that in 2015, she had the, you know, the famous sophomore slump sort of thing. Uh, I think she was just was overwhelmed by you know everything that hit her when she did so well so young and uh, she also had some I think she had a bit of an eating problem she lost some weight just a lot of things went wrong and then she's had a number of injuries since then but I think maybe one of the the, the best things that's happened lately she seems to have put on a little bit of weight she seems physically stronger and you know she's a she's a terrific striker of the ball and, and if you're maybe 10 or 15 pounds lighter and you're not as sure of yourself that that's not good but I, I think she's stronger right now which I think is great and she just I, maybe is over all the nonsense that's gone on and she's just sort of bearing down on tennis and um, you know Robert Lansdorp I think coming on board in the spring he's a no-nonsense kind of guy so a lot of things like that I think sort of knocked some sense into her and helped her sort of uh, really concentrate on, on the tennis and, and what she can do and, and she's done pretty well ever since. 
And uh, with uh, the result in Luxembourg, she's uh, now inside that top 90, number 88 in the world. Um, obviously, obviously, the bar uh, was set so high after the 2014 run. I, I think we lowered the bar given the, the past struggles. But I, I guess w- what's a reasonable expe- expectation maybe for Canadian tennis fans uh, to have for Jeannie? Uh, how good can she maybe become again? Uh, well, you know, I've, I've been around too long to make predictions. You just, just we all get it wrong. So that's, it's tricky to say, but I mean, clearly she has a talent to be top 40. She have, probably has a talent to be top 20, uh, maybe top 10 seems a bit much, but then again, you know, I could be wrong about that. Like I said, I can often be wrong. So I would definitely think she's definitely top 50, um, and certainly probably top 40 and, and the ability she's shown in the past could make her top 20. So there's no reason to, not to expect, uh, that she can, you know, she can have the kind of results that she needs to get there. But, you know, it's been inconsistently lately and there's been some injuries and everything. So if she can conquer all that. And like I said, you know, Michael Joyce, I think is, is a good choice as coach at the moment. And hopefully he hangs around for a while and, and she can keep moving up. Jeannie had been the number one Canadian player for obviously several years and had won uh, almost annually the Canadian Female Player of the Year Award, which last year for the first time since I believe 2013 she didn't capture, lost the number one Canadian ranking earlier this year for a stretch. Do you think those gave her any extra added motivation, a little chip on her shoulder to kind of prove that she's still Canada's number one? I don't think that makes that much of a difference to her, quite frankly. I, I think she just got pride as a as a as a as a first rate tennis player, which she has been and which maybe she still is. So I just think she's you know, when you get up to one eighty or whatever she was just a couple of months ago, um I think maybe your first goal is, is really to get inside because that's maybe in June, July and, and you know probably you're not gonna do too much at the US Open and you just wanna sort of start off your new year fresh. So I think like I said, she's done that. She's eighty eight, she's definitely gonna be in the into the Australian Open, which actually helps in, in another way too, because if you're directly into the the Australian Open means you can play the week before and two weeks before that and then the Australian Open. Whereas if you have to play the qualifying, that takes away that week before the Australian Open and gives you a little less leeway. So I think there's a lot of benefits to getting right into the Australian Open. And I've written about this before because um, I'm lucky enough to go there most years. Um, it's, it's a long, long trip and it's, it's not a trip you want to go to and, and lose in the qualifying because it's a long flight back. So I think just the fact that you're reassured you're in the main draw at the Australian Open, it's a really positive thing starting out the new year. Yes, and uh, certainly, uh, as you mentioned before, just the ball striking, uh, that was probably what I was most impressed by, uh, just watching her, her string of matches in, Lu- in Luxembourg. She was hitting the ball hard, fairly flat, and just hitting a lot of winners on the ground. I know there was a stretch, uh, went over Carla Suarez-Navarro, where she won uh, 10 consecutive points with a handful of winners. But uh, at the same time, when I look at the semifinal loss to uh, Gerges, um, that, that was a match she should have won. That was a match she was in control of. And we've seen so many times of the past few few years uh matches sort of turn on its head and uh with genie to me the the biggest issue seems to be the mental side of the game is that in your assessment maybe the biggest hurdle she'll have to overcome to to get back maybe top 50 top 40 yeah, no question. I mean, I mean, she didn't lose all her ability to play tennis, and that's the way she bloomed up into the, you know close to 200. It wasn't because she couldn't hit a backhand or forehand. It was I, basically it's all in the head. So the head seems to be straightened around a little bit right now. And if she can keep it that way, she she can do well. But you know, she obviously got tight in some matches that that prevented her from playing her best tennis. And I think that's a very hard thing for anybody, a coach or whoever, to sort of reassure a player or get a player to sort of feel more calm and and play their natural tennis in those difficult moments. Tom, moving on, just to look at the uh, results last week on the WTA Tour, and we'll, we'll look at Moscow here as well. 
where uh, Daria Kasatkina, a rising star on the, the women's tour, uh, won title on uh, home soil over Anz Jabour. Uh, there was that uh, clip that went kind of viral on, uh, on Twitter of the uh, pep talk that her coach gave her in an earlier round match against Elise Cornet, and that sort of brings up that whole debate again uh, on court coaching and uh, the entertainment value of it, the usefulness among the players that certainly seemed to get uh, Kasatkina going in a match that otherwise uh, looked like it was uh, slipping out of her, her grasp. What, what do you think about the on-court coaching in general? Is that something that we uh, are going to end up seeing at the slams? And, and do you think that'd be a good thing if we did? I don't really like on-court coaching. Man, I'm an older guy, and you won't find many older people and traditionalists who are going to be in favor of on-court coaching. It's mano a mano, woman against woman. Um, that's the essence of tennis. I, I don't like the fact that you know maybe one player can't afford a coach, and so some high-profile coach comes on and walks past some poor little innocent player from Peru or South Africa or something like that, and then you're going to see some top right top flight player, and you got this you know Martina Navratilova or whoever walking by. I just don't like that whole perspective, but I do think it's gotten a little bit nuts with uh, you know the, there is coaching going on from the side. I, I sort of like to see them try to, to allow signals. Um, I don't like the fact that I think the U.S. Open is going to try something where when the players at your end of the court I think they did this in, this in the qualifying, you can talk to your player. Because I just think it can intimidate the other player and it just can, you know, if the, play, if the coach talks loudly or it's just, it interrupts everything. But, you know, if you're playing somebody and their coach is giving signals, you don't have to look at their coach and their coach just gives a T sign or gives a, an up sign, a, a thumbs up sign or a points a figure in a certain direction, at least that way it means you get you get rid of all the nonsense of the, the umpires having to look for the you know the slightest thing or uh, is somebody moving around the stadium hiding somewhere else or all that stuff. And it really shouldn't bother the opponent. So I, I wouldn't be against having signals from the side of the court. But actually coming on, it, it's all a bit crazy, isn't it? Because if you come on and, and your player says to you, geez, I can't hit a four and I haven't been able to hit it for six weeks, well, are they really going to say that? Because in the next tournament, the player who plays against is going to say, well, she just said to her coach that she can't hit forehand, hasn't been on hit for the last six weeks. So uh, I sort of think there's, there's something funny about it. But I have to admit there have been times with some coaches that uh, you know have been pretty impressive. It used to be fun to see Bartoli talk to her father, and Petkovic is good because she'll actually listen and have a conversation. But I could never stand the dynamic of Carolyn Wozniacki and her father Piotr. I mean, he would just harangue her, harangue her, harangue her, and she'd sit there like a like a zombie and not say anything. I just didn't think the, the optic of that was very good for women's tennis. So I, I'm against the coaches coming right out on the court. But like I said, you know, signals, I think, would be a way to, have a, to make a compromise. I'm I'm glad uh, I'm glad I'm not the only one who's uh, sort of has the traditionalist view on on coaching uh, for for tennis and encore coaching. I don't think it is, should exist either. However, uh, it, it does at WTA events, and I just want to know how do you think it is viewed by by the players? Do do they like having that option? I think some do probably and some don't. I mean, I know like somebody like a Federer, for example, we're talking about the men now, but I mean a guy like that who, who's got who's got really a handle on everything. I think he's going he's to really be against it because, I mean, he doesn't need on-court coaching. So it's going to be an advantage to his opponent. So I think the women players who are sort of more self-sufficient, more experienced, they're probably going to be against it. Uh, although it's been around for, what, seven or eight years now at least. So uh, some players are getting used to it. Some top players obviously getting used to it. But, um, you know, I, I, just, I just think that it's really hard to tell. That's probably a lot of players actually don't mind it that much, but they're they're sort of young and maybe don't know the overall history of the sport, the the perspective of you know what it looks like to people from the outside. And one of the things that doesn't work at all, of course, is when it's in a language other than the one that you speak. And a number of times it's like that. So that that sort of seems a bit foolish as well. 
That uh, reminds me of the tweet this week from Serena Williams' coach, and it's interesting to me that Patrick Muratoglu would have even gone out and said this, given the fact that Serena's never been a proponent of on-court coaching and would never use a coach uh, even when she was allowed at certain tournaments. What what do you make of Patrick's tweet, uh, given the fact he coaches a player who doesn't even want to see it necessarily in the game? Well, he could be the same as me sort of thing, is that you, you... It goes on anyway, so you want to legalize it. But like I said, I, I would limit it to off off the uh, the court and in the stands, and just have signals. I mean, he he may may prefer actually going in court and having the conversation. Uh, I guess that's where I differ with him. But I mean, he's certainly been around a long time. He's a bright guy, and he's entitled to his opinion. And uh, we'll we'll take it from there before we move to the men's side, Tom. Uh, we're actually going to discuss uh, one other Canadian who had a nice result in an ITF event uh, in Florence, South Carolina. We haven't seen as much of Bianca Andreescu uh, this season, but uh, back from injury, winning a $25,000 ITF uh, event and, and didn't drop a set until the finals. Um, I guess maybe Bianca's gone a little bit off our radar, but uh, in terms of Canadian hopefuls on the women's side, she has to be probably right up there, right? Yeah, I guess right now, if you think about it, it would be Rebecca Marino and her, um, of, of the players who exist at the moment. Uh, I think she is, I was checking, uh, I think she's up to actually 204 or something, her ranking is something like 243, but effectively because the points haven't come on yet, I think she's up to 204. So she's a much better player than that. She's a terrific player. She's a very good athlete. She's a good fighter. Um, I think she had just, just sort of some, you know, teenage growing pains uh, this past year, and, and she had the back problem, obviously, that kept her out, I think, after the qualifying for the U.S. Open. But uh, she said the back is fine now. She came back strong last week, and uh, she's definitely into the qualifying for the Australian Open, as I, I keep mentioning that, but I think that's a really important thing for the players. So she'll be right into that, which she might not have been before winning that tournament in Florence. So um, I expect, you know, if she's got her head on straight and everything's good, that I mean, she has all kinds of potential and definitely should be in the top 100, and, and she definitely has top 50 potential if not a lot higher. And and in terms of how big a prospect she could be, because there's been so much attention on the male side uh, here for Tennis Canada with Dennis and Felix and and how much they've done the past year or so, uh, for tennis fans in Canada, should they be expecting something similar on the women's side from Bianca, or is that too much pressure on her shoulders at this point, do you think? Um, You know, it's hard to say. I mean, I think she definitely has a lot of potential. As I said before, I'm not too keen on making predictions because it's just, you know, I've seen over the years the the people who come along. I mean, Philip Pellewo, you know, won both the U.S. Open and Wimbledon, and I think his highest ranking has been around 130, and he's now up at 188, I think, or something. So um, uh, it's just just so hard to predict. But, I mean, she just, uh, you know, is is an excellent striker of the ball. She's, She's a good competitor. Uh, she's a good athlete, so I mean, really, she has a lot of potential. But to say she's going to be number seven or number seventeen or number forty-seven is really hard to say. But she's clearly a top one hundred player, and I think clearly a top fifty player. And from there, it's you know, it's hard to say. But I mean, she's definitely our best young prospect at the time. It's amazing what Rebecca Marino has done at twenty-seven um, to get back inside the top two hundred. She'll be in the qualifying for the Australian, um, and she's got a back problem now, so she's out for the rest of the year. But I think it's not too serious from what I hear, and so she should be in good shape uh, going into the new year. I'll try to stop putting you on the spot there, Tom, but no promises. Um, I did want to mention the Tevlin Challengers coming up here in Toronto. Qualifying starts this coming weekend. It's a great event for any listeners who haven't been before. It's free admission as well, and you get to see a lot of players in the 100, 200 uh, plus range up close, um, you know, which is really great and intimate setting. Uh, We're hoping Bianca is going to be there for that as well. Uh, I'm assuming you've been to the Tevlin before. Can you maybe just share, uh, you know, some of the positives of having uh, a challenger type event like this in our in our city here? 
Well, I mean, the the first positive is for the Canadian players, you get wild cards, so you can you can put a you know maybe four or five wild cards into the draw, and then same thing for the qualifying. So it just gives experience to the Canadian players. So that's one of the most valuable things about the challenger going on this week in Saguenay, and the one obviously next week here in Toronto. And you know, up at the uh, I guess it's in the Center for Excellence at uh, at the Aviva Center. Um, you know, the, you can sit right beside the court and watch the players. I think last year actually Patty Schneider was playing. I remember I was up and watching, and she's now I don't know 38 years old. And she's a mother, but you know she's been top 10 she was one of the best women's players uh 10 15 years ago still can play fairly well so when you have people like that i remember watching uh alexandra stevenson play uh you know she was been she was a woman the semifinalist and she's not done too well the last 15 years or so but she was kind of a curiosity she was there uh, i think christina McHale. i remember seeing her so there's a lot of good players that played there uh, heather watson has played and obviously you know wasniaki I think Bouchard might have played one year. I'm not sure. So I mean, there's a lot of good players there, and it's like it's free. It's just you just have to get yourself out there, which is easier now with the TTC, and you'll you'll see a lot of good players. You are listening to the Southpaw Slice. Remember, find us at Southpaw underscore Slice. Our guest on this episode, Tom Tebbett. You can find him on Twitter at Tom Tebbett. We'll shift over to the men's side and uh, start with the Stockholm Open where Denis Shapovalov was in contention. And to me, I thought he had a quite a favorable draw, but uh, surprisingly losing to Ernest Gulbis in the round of 16. Gulbis would go on to make the final. Uh, was this maybe a bit of a disappointing tournament from Dennis? And what have you seen from Shapovalov, at least? Uh, through this fall fall indoor season, um, you know I think he's he's a little jaded. I, I think it's I mean, this time last year. I know he said to some people, uh, maybe it was one of the tournaments in Asia that he was feeling a little bit homesick. I mean, he's a year older now; he's nineteen. But I, I still think he's going through a little bit of that. It's it's a long year, and then when you finish it off being in Asia, now he's back in Europe. Um, you know, he, he had a, a disappointing result uh, today. Obviously, Chilich is a better player, but I mean, Dennis had a few moments when he played well, but on the whole, I thought he played well below his best level. So it's it's hard for him. He's got uh, Paris coming up next week, and then he's going to the next gen in Milan the week after that. So that's a long stretch away from home. So I'm sure, hopefully, he'll do well next week. Hopefully, he'll do well in next gen, but I'd be more concerned with him getting a good, clean break and then coming back in January and, and doing well, uh, you know, at the Australian Open and the tournaments leading up to the Australian Open. I think you're right on the money in terms of the growing pains that a young player is going to face while traveling the world. And, and maybe some people who saw him on his big run in Montreal last summer just thought things would be easy for him this year. But how would you assess his season overall, his first sort of full pro season on the ATP Tour um, at this point as, as we wind things down? Well, I, I mean, I find it amazing. A lot of people say to me, Joe, he's kind of disappointing, isn't he? I'm mean, thinking, come on, the guy's 19 years old. I mean, he's he's ranked uh, number 29th. Of my, actually, I think he actually may be 28. For some reason, he lost today, and he went up by one. And I think the same thing happened with Milos, too, for some crazy reason, in the live ATP ranking. So, um, no, I think he's done fine. I mean, he, he looks 100% like he belongs. When he plays even the top players, he looks 100% like he belongs. He, he He's not sort of, because he's got an offensive game, he can kind of assert himself. And, and you know, take control of matches when he's when he's really on. I don't think he's had really that many bad losses. Um, I guess he had a bad loss here, uh, sort of not too good at the Rogers Cup, a bit surprising. But uh, and then he played two matches, good matches before that. So I think that inconsistency is all part of being 19 years old. And uh, yeah, you mentioned uh, obviously the next gen finals, and he played there last year. Uh, among the names there, Stefano Tsitsipas, who just won his first career ATP title, uh, 20 years old, and we saw what he can do uh, just in Toronto at Rogers Cup, reaching the final there. Other names: Alex Dimonau or Francis Tiafo, Taylor Fritz. I, I imagine Andre Rublev will be there as well. Where do you think Shapovalov sort of fits amongst those crop of players uh, in terms of his level? 
Again, it's really hard to say. Uh, I mean, I, I watched uh, uh, Pass and, and um, Dennis play at the Australian Open this year, and, and Dennis beat him pretty handily. And I actually spoke briefly to Pass afterwards. He was really discouraged. And I remember thinking, you know, Dennis is way better than this guy. I mean, because he's, he's more dynamic and he's more aggressive and he hits bigger shots. And you never would have thought, well, I think uh, Pass beat him on clay. Um, was it Budapest or somewhere like that? Anyway, before the Masters 1000 tournaments in May. And so he won that one. And then obviously he's had this great run to the, uh, uh, yeah, he had run to, I think, the final in Barcelona. And then you know, obviously he did well here uh, at our tournament, getting to the final. And he's he's gone up to, what, number 15 or something. So obviously everyone's going to say, well, he's better than Dennis. Well, things can change very quickly. And I'm not sure who I take of those two, although I'm a little bit surprised at how well Pass has done. I mean, he's a very impressive player, but. I mean, there's not many people that won't be, won't tell you, people who know tennis very well, that Dennis is also a very impressive player. So we'll see what happens next year. I think it'll be fascinating to see who's the higher-ranked player at the end of next year. I wouldn't be at all surprised if it was Dennis, but, you know, Pass is a very good player. He's shown that, so maybe it will be him. So, like I said, it'll be fun to see. If we move off of that uh, next-gen group and look at sort of the, uh, the, the middle-aged uh, players for a second, uh, we had two Canadians face each other last week in Belgium, Vasek Pospisil and Milos Raonic. Uh, and those guys sort of overshadowed maybe in the headlines by uh, the young guns coming up, but still around 27, 28 years old, respectively. And it was actually Vasek who got his first win here, which was uh, nice to see for, for a player who's been working so hard the last couple of years and, and a real nice guy. Uh, what, do we, uh, what do we make of, of these two at, at this point? Vasek, you know, seems to have sort of uh, hit a wall the past few years, no longer seems to be playing doubles either. And then uh, Milos, of course, just injury after injury, it seems, this year for him. Yeah, well, Vashik doesn't want to play doubles anymore. He keeps saying he's a singles player. So, I mean, we know how good he is in doubles. It's great to have him in Davis Cup because he's an excellent doubles player. But he wants to play singles. Uh, his ranking is up to 73 now, which is, you know, he was over 100. It was a little bit of, you know, some doubts about, you know, getting into the Australian Open and getting really back into the swing of things. So he, he's in good shape now, I think, to hopefully make, a you know, a bit of a, a push next year. Um, as for Milos, I mean, that match was quite interesting, actually, because um, there was really, it was very close, a tiebreaker in the first set, and I remember sort of keeping some notes, and I think Vashik won at 7-3, so he had five serves in that, in that tiebreak, and he had three aces, a service winner, and the other serve he had, Milos didn't get the ball back, didn't make the return. So all five points that he played on his serve... Um, he didn't even have to hit a ground stroke. He just had to hit the serve, and he, and he won the point. And then he got a – well, actually, he had too many breaks. But the first one, he had a good low uh, passing shot, I think, and Milos missed a volley into the net. Um, so it was very little things. And also, I think Milos is going through a poor stretch right now. Of course, the, the loss today is, is uh, very disappointing. And um, to lose to Meltzer, who's 37 years old, ranked, I don't know, 440 or something, and playing his final tournament. Um, but, I mean, Milos just wasn't right today, I don't think. We saw the treatment in the second set where he was on the court and some stuff above his, his, his knee, uh, above his knee and below his knee. So who knows exactly what it was. But clearly he wasn't moving very well, and that's a very disappointing loss. So um, I just thought he was going through a bad patch who knows if the you know the little knee problem or whatever it was today uh, does go back a few tournaments and then he's been fighting through it and maybe that's why he hasn't played very well because it's seldom with Milos that he'll he'll like he's lost four matches in a row now seldom will that happen I mean he, he always seems to even when he's hurt come back and play very well and he certainly doesn't go out in very many first rounds so um, I just thought it was a bad patch hopefully it is just that but uh, if this knee thing is a bit more of an issue he actually he could actually be finished for the year because the only tournament he has left is next year in, sorry next week in Paris.
Yeah, as you said, uh, Jurgen Meltzer uh, upsetting Milos Raonic seven six seven five at the Erstbank Open in Vienna, and it is four straight losses uh, for Raonic dating back to uh, when Daniel uh, Medvedev beat him in the quarterfinals uh, in Japan. And yeah, it, it does just look like a, a bad stretch. One thing I was a little surprised about uh, Tom was that he was playing this event, given if there were any injury concerns that uh, you think maybe the priority priority would be to, to make sure you're healthy for that Masters 1000 in Paris. Do you think it was just a, a case of him wanting uh, some extra match play before he goes into the final Masters 1000? Well, I think he lost to Mackenzie McDonald in Shanghai, which I was very surprised about. Mackenzie McDonald's a very good player and actually beat him at Wimbledon. I saw the match, and uh, McDonald, I think, won a set, but Milos was thoroughly in control of that match. Obviously, on grass with his serve, it really helps him. But uh, after that match, then he, th- he took the wild card into Antwerp last week. Uh, he wanted the extra match play, so I assume he definitely would have been healthy going into Antwerp now. Whether he, you know, he did something there and that carried over this week, I don't know. But um, he definitely wanted to, you know, to play there. And I assume that even though he lost to Vashek uh, in the first round or his first outing, um, you know, he would have been fit to play this week. So we'll have to wait and see what happens. But I mean, anytime you see him getting a, getting a treatment on court like that, you just, you know, you, you feel so sorry for him because. I mean, goodness knows he's had so many things he's had to battle through the last couple of years, and it goes right back to you know 2011 when he when he hurt his hip and had to have the surgery plan when he was playing at Wimbledon. So I, I don't know. Hopefully he can get it all straightened out and be okay. But like I said, even you know, I, I was you know I felt really sorry for him watching him on the court today or seeing him on the court today, and uh, hopefully maybe it doesn't get straightened out for next week. It certainly gets straightened out for the new season. Yeah, we'll see if uh, if you can heal up in time for, for Paris. If not, uh, turn the calendar and be healthy come 2019 for the Australian Open. Tom, I want, you, I want to thank you so much for, for joining us on the program. I uh, really appreciate it. No problem. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Hope to see you at the Tevlin. We won't have to fight for uh, front row seating there, that's for sure. Yeah, we'll be okay, I think, yeah. <laughs> Talk to you soon. All right, see ya. That was uh, Tom Tebbit. You can find him at Tom Tebbit, and you are listening to the Southpaw Slice. You can find us at Southpaw underscore Slice. Find myself at Ben Lewis SN590, and find Mike at Pro Tennis Fan. Of course, subscribe on SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, yeah, just the the injuries again. I mean, we we feel like we're talking about it every other week with Milos Raonic, and uh, I was trying to be optimistic. I think the last time we spoke about it because we hadn't seen anything for maybe a couple weeks, and then again against Jurgen Meltzer uh, of all players. Yeah, it's concerning long term. I think for Milos because this year it wasn't just like one or two, but it seemed almost to become like a, a routine thing with him, and it wasn't always the same area either. I don't know if that's better or worse, but uh, I, I mean, I think at this point just shut it down and get healthy, get completely healthy, train and do whatever you need to do to be ready for 2019. Why risk further injury at this point uh, when there's really just the one event uh, that's left on the schedule? Yeah, and... uh because he he shut down 2017 early anyway he's not he's not defending anything at Paris there's nothing there's no you know quarter or semifinal that he has to back up with points uh, I, I think you know I, I would say even even if he is feeling healthy next week I don't I don't know that it's worth it to play Paris yeah agreed uh, we'll, we'll continue on the men's side. Um, we missed last week, but uh, should note Novak Djokovic uh, winning his 32nd uh, career Masters 1000 in Shanghai. He's just dominated there, and uh, it was another dominant tournament. Didn't drop a set, uh, beat Borna Chorich in uh, the finals there. And since the summer, to me, look, he's he's been the best player uh 
on on the the men's side uh, unquestionably win at Wimbledon the win in Cincinnati the title at the U.S. Open now another tournament victory look we, we've seen him get to the the greatest of heights you wonder if he's starting to take over again like he he did from 2015 to 2016 well it sure seems like it and to me it wouldn't have mattered even what he did beyond the U.S. Open because just the fact that he grabbed those last two slams of the year uh the way he did that was enough of an announcement from from him to say I'm back and 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 as good as as I've been in quite a while uh but now here he is even in the late stages of the season pushing forward seeming hungry and and just you know almost untouchable so who can slow him down you know as we as we look to next season already um and and there's very few players really that that come to mind uh, even you know someone like Roger Federer, who started this year a whole lot better than he seems to be finishing it, uh, you know, didn't seem to have anything against him the last time they faced each other. Uh, to me, if anyone's going to sort of you know put a, put the brakes on this or or really contend with him next year, I think it's going to be someone from that that next generation maybe who's ready to step up and start to assert themselves. You know, they've they've had little moments where they're starting to to, to build up and get wins and get tournaments now and and Sissipas, as we saw last week and and Kachanov. And uh, I think these guys are getting closer to being that that next wave uh, as opposed to the guys in between like the Miloshes, the Dimitrovs, yeah. uh, those guys who I think unfortunately have sort of seen their chance almost pass them by. Yes, yes. And uh, look, yeah, we talk about players like Kaney Shikori and uh, Novak Djokovic uh, beat him at Wimbledon and at the U.S. Open. And uh, Nishikori was not able to put up much of a fight. You'd be looking to maybe uh, see what a name like Sasha Zverev can do in 2019 if he can give that extra push finally in a Grand Slam. He really didn't challenge... uh, in Shanghai, Djokovic beat him very comfortably, 6-2, 6-1. I know uh, Rafa Nadal's probably been spending this time getting a rest, getting his body healthy. He plans to play Paris, so that will be interesting because uh, Novak Djokovic, I know, wants to wrestle that number one uh, ranking away from him, and uh, he has a very good shot of doing it. Nadal would have to uh, pull off a lot to uh, to hang on to it, and considering the level uh, Novak is playing. We'll, we'll close with a few of the men's tournaments uh, that we saw this past week, European Open. It's almost strange to me that Kyle Edmund hadn't won an ATP title. Uh, such a solid player uh, for the past few years and uh, beat Gael Monfils here in the final. Um, I, yeah, always... I, don't, I don't know if I'm surprised that it's his first title, um, but boy, has he really kind of put himself on the map this year. And I think with Andy Murray being out with that injury, you know, some, some people would have uh, sort of wilted under that pressure of being the one to lead the charge for their country. Mm-hmm. And Kyle Edmund, it's been kind of the complete opposite. He seems to have really, uh, you know, run with it. And good on him, and certainly Andy Murray's been super supportive, you know, from behind the scenes, just encouraging him as well. It'll be nice to see, you know, hopefully Murray healthy in 2019, because that really does give uh, Great Britain a, a solid one-two punch. But, um, yeah, kudos to to Kyle Edmund for, for what he's been able to do. I did not see this coming, uh, but he, he kicked the year off, obviously, at the Aussie Open with a fantastic performance. Yeah. And, uh, and here he is now closing the season on a, on a high note as well. Yeah, yeah, he had a great, great opening to to the season. I remember that uh, in Australia. Gal Mofis, uh nice job for him to reach a final. I read an interesting stat about him that I'll, I'll just share. Mofis has been to 28 ATP singles finals. He's only won seven titles. Wow. Yeah. That is shocking. <laughs> yeah, 7-21 and 21 in with ATP all that, finals. With all that talent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I, I'm, I mean, I, I haven't looked exactly at the numbers, I'm sure. 
a hand, more than a handful of those losses have come to. I'm sure Nadal has got him on clay a handful of times. Uh, he's never beaten Novak in his career. Federer's beaten him a handful of times. Uh, tough era to win titles, but yeah, that's totally. a, still a surprising disparity. Yeah, uh, and he was such a promising, you know, junior player, number one junior player in the world, and yeah. so much talent, so athletic. And, and almost too much athleticism because he, <laughs> he never kind of dialed it back. He was always yep. giving us those circus-like performances. And, um, you know, I'll miss him when, when his career eventually ends. And, and I can't see with the style of play that he's had that he's going to have a, a deep into his late 30s kind of career. But um, super entertaining and, and, and someone that will be missed when it comes to that, that point in time. Yeah, 32 years old now. Impressive for him. Good season. And uh, picked up his seventh career title this year as well. Uh, Kremlin Klepp, uh, and great week for Karen Kachanov and a, a strong win. He now has three titles and he's just 22 years old. Another one of these rising stars. Uh, one of the, one of the top Russians in the world. We've seen what Daniel Medvedev uh, could produce in the, the prior weeks winning uh, in Japan. And now Karen Kachanov uh, winning in Russia. And he's uh, firmly inside the top 20. He's going to move up to number 17. I was really impressed actually when I saw him uh, in Toronto at Rogers cup, big win against John Isner uh, just looked like he absolutely belonged. And some great matches, again, that come to mind for me. It was uh, against Nadal. I think he had a couple of matches against Nadal that were just... U.S. Open, four-setter, which was uh, really, really close. And that one lasted forever. Like, that was four-setter, but it it seemed like a (laughs) five-setter. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, tons of potential with him. And and the Russians, another country. You know, Canada's got a couple of guys that we're certainly keen on, but but Russia's got a couple that have got there a little bit quicker and uh, might have the upper hand, I think, if we, we compare ourselves to uh, to that nation at the moment. Yes, it's interesting right now, actually, the way the rankings line up. Uh, Kachanov will be the 17th-ranked player, Medvedev right behind him at uh, number 18. One uh, rule change, I know we had this topic, actually, uh, you know, post-Wimbledon, after we saw the, the Kevin Anderson-John Isner epic uh, and these just long, exhaustive matches, the, the discussion came about of having a fifth-set tiebreak at Wimbledon, and they've instilled one at 12-all. So if you get into that fifth set and the players keep holding serve all the way up to 12-12, then you play a tie break. Mike, how do you feel about this rule? Well, first of all, I'm kind of surprised that Wimbledon was uh, bold enough to, to make a change because they are such a traditional, you know, stick to their guns type of event. So uh, very surprised that they've made a change at all. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, I'm kind of surprised with the decision to make it at, at 12 all. I mean, look, personally, and, and going back to what Tom Tevitt was saying earlier, but I lean more towards the traditional side of things as well, being a, a longtime tennis fan and growing up with things a certain way. Not that, uh, you know, change can't be good if done properly, but uh, I never had a problem with those fifth set matches, five set matches going the distance. I mean, look, we only saw that one ridiculous one years ago between Mahu and Isner that went 70 to 68. I'm surprised this wasn't really instituted at that point in time, which might have been more understandable. It's not like you're having deep five-set matches happen with so much regularity that, to me, it necessitates this kind of a change. And then to do it at 12-all seems kind of arbitrary as well. Like, why not just get in line with the U.S. Open and and do it, you know, at the end of a a regular set? So uh, not quite sure what to make of it. I guess it's going to take me some time to to adjust, but uh, it it is what it is. And and I guess you see it maybe a little bit differently than than I do on this one. Yeah, I was actually pro the rule. Uh, I I think the 12-all choice makes sense in the fact that 
your original tiebreak would start at 6-6. So if you get to 12-all, it's like you've played an additional sixth set almost, that you played an extra 12 games. That would be comparable to playing another set. So it's like you're having a tiebreak after six sets in a way. So in terms of choosing an arbitrary place to stop, that to me makes sense. And, um, yeah, I think, look, this has been dubbed the John Isner rule, understandably so. Uh, he's been in line with so many of those epics uh, in 26-24 against Kevin Anderson this week. Uh, I know the argument's been made, like, break a serve, like, you should be able to break a serve. I watched some of those matches like Anderson and Isner, the level that they were serving these, you know, 135 mile per hour bombs, considering how fast the grass surface plays. Uh, I, I just wear that the game is getting so quick that, you know, especially on Wimbledon where it can be become a bit of a server's haven and you can have just these quick, quick service games that you need a place to stop it because this could, you know, go on forever. It, it did obviously with the John Isner, Nicholas Mahu match that the match that literally took three days <laughs> And over 11 hours, I I think maybe in my eyes, it's somewhat proactive in case we kept seeing these creep up over and over again. And I just reverence when people say, like, why can't you just break a serve in the fifth set? Roger Federer couldn't break Kevin Anderson's serve. He basically couldn't break Kevin Anderson's serve for three consecutive, really like four sets if you can consider how long they played into a fifth before Anderson finally got him. So if, if Roger Federer has that much trouble breaking someone's serve to me, it gets maybe a little too difficult. And I understand uh, the rule change. I would have loved to have been in that room listening to whoever the committee was at Wimbledon, having yeah. their, their debate on this matter. Like how close was it? What were the other avenues that were explored? Right. Uh, you know, did majority, I guess majority must've gone along with this 12, 12 tiebreak idea, but what were the other options, you know, that were discussed and how close were they to adopting? opting something different or leaving things, you know, just status quo. It'd be uh, interesting to hear what uh, what was going on behind closed doors. Yeah. And look, as you said, uh, of any tournament, of any Grand Slam tournament to, to make a change like this, you would never think Wimbledon would be the one uh, stepping up like the ultimate traditionalist, like long longest tenured tournament in, in the history of the sport. So that's uh, pretty surprising. Uh, but there you have it. Next year, if we see any matches that get to 12-12 in a fifth set, uh, which would be men's and women's side um i believe i don't know if i no? heard it on the women's i or think it's it just, just gonna be just fifth okay i, so I only heard for the men's in the fifth set okay so i think yeah if we see a match in going into the fifth set 12 all uh then we will see a tie break if that were to happen uh mike thanks for coming in studio today and it was awesome chatting with uh, tom that was great yeah we only got so many more of these i guess before the end of the year so we got to take advantage and uh, and thanks again to tom who's been uh, you know a good friend of mine and and someone that i've certainly tried to you know, pattern myself after in my, uh, you know, limited media forays over the years. So uh, really great and, and kind of nice to have him on uh, tonight with, with us. Absolutely. I'll, I'll make one note because uh, we forgot to get to it. But uh, if you're looking for great women's tennis this week, uh, we have the WTA finals in Singapore. And I'll just give you the, the eight players competing. Naomi Osaka's there, Alina Svitolina, Caroline Wojniacki, Angelique Kerber, Sloane Stevens, Carolina Pliskova, Petra Kvitova, and Kiki Burton's all competing for the title there. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. We will talk to you next week.